Hello you, tuning in to Psychomedy. It's Rafaela here from ThreadUp. ThreadUp brings exciting new changes to its services in direct response to what we learned while supporting comedians and creatives through the crisis with their mental health and including those who lost their income. Check it out at threadup.co.uk and get in touch to arrange your therapy that supports creativity. Psychology. I am Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a subject I've been studying for 25 years and a quarter of a century of studying the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage. Alongside being a stand-up comedian for the last 10 years has led me here today discussing the psychology of comedy with today's very special guest, the absolutely brilliant J.L. Coven. Here we go. <laughs> very nice to be here. Thank you. Oh, lovely to have you. How are you today? Uh, as I just said, I've been listening to a lot of your stuff over the last couple of days and uh, and loving it. Oh, well, I, I like to hear that because, you know, there's I've sort of gotten very big from uh, my Trump impression, mm. but then it becomes this massive drop off where you're like, hey, if you think my sense of humor is funny, there's also this 17-year catalog of videos, <laughs> impressions, and stand-up albums, and people are like, eh, may, maybe <laughs> next time. <laughs> So it's nice to see some people, uh, you know, picking up on it. And because the Trump impression has been a couple of years, but the stand up comedy, you know, is, is 17 years of work. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to talk in more detail about that because I think that is the key to a lot, not just your career, but I think a lot of a lot of stand ups careers that, as you say, you've been releasing these minute or two clips that have gone viral and have been hugely successful for you over lockdown but it's like have a look over here i've got six albums <laughs> i've i've been doing this for 17 years and as you say it's like nah i'm making i'm making a flan or whatever i'm not interested i've only got three minutes spare well my know, favorite so. thing is something something about maybe the way we are now but people said hey you should set up a patreon so people can donate if they like your stuff and i go well you could buy my <laughs> albums and if you don't listen to them that counts as a donation but if you listen to them you might enjoy it I might pick up a more engaged fan. It's a win-win. And people are like, yeah, I'd rather just do a Patreon. And I go, I don't understand. I don't understand how to succeed then. I don't know what it takes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, one of the things I picked up from your blog. Um, so, yeah, I should just explain. We're talking to each other on Zoom. Of course we are. I mean, you're in America, obviously. But uh, usually be on my sofa and we wouldn't be looking each other in the eye. But here we're looking each other in the eye, but still with a separation of Zoom, which I quite like. Um, so yeah, I went to your blog, and if you don't mind, I'm going to read out a few passages from your blog, oh, sure. because uh, I love that too. And um, first thing I picked up on, I think was uh, one of your latest ones, and it said this. It said, I stuck true to my voice. I wanted my comedy career to be pure in the sense that if and when I reached where I wanted to get, it would be an unassailable journey that others could look at with admiration and for which I could feel an unblemished pride. I did all of that, and it did not happen until March 2020. 
So uh, I love that. And the sentence I love the, the most is I wanted my comedy career to be pure. And it's something I've talked about on this podcast a lot in terms of my ethos with, uh, with stand-up comedy. Can we talk about what you mean there as uh, sure. pure, as a, as, a, as a concept? Sure. Um, I think that it's, it's various things. You know, I'm, I'm a Catholic, not a lapsed Catholic. I, I still go to church when, when it's scientifically appropriate. <laughs> but uh, I was a college basketball player who was disappointed in his career. Uh, I'm, I am still a lawyer, but, you know, I didn't have some sort of stellar legal career. Comedy was the thing that I felt like I was really good at. I was a funny kid. And we can get into how that was probably a coping mechanism for other things. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I have always done it in a way. Um, I don't, not to get too detailed, but like I really have a, I've never had a problem with women, but I've never used comedy as a device to get women. Maybe a sense of humor, but I've never, I don't hook up after shows when I'm single. I don't do that kind of stuff. I, I view comedy as this one thing in my life that I have never really messed up, that I have done it in a way that is so consistent with, with how I think it should be done, which is uh, leave personal feelings aside, um, go for funny first, don't go for message first. Obviously, my beliefs, my opinions will come out in comedy, but I don't try to uh, get, as they say, clapter. I, I don't look for, you know, oh, yes, we agree with your thoughts. Like, I, I've always said I'm a, I'm a left of center person politically, but then I like to use that vantage point to almost mock the left from a place yeah. of inclusion rather than I'm going to spout some platitudes that will make people happy and clap. And it's I'm, I'm sorry, I'm giving a very holistic approach and maybe this That's is too high-minded. For me, though, I mean, I just, it's this one thing in my life. It's been most of my adult life. I started when I was in law school. And it is this chance, this opportunity to do something where I say, I didn't compromise. I didn't violate how I think comedy should be done. You know, it's, 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 I don't know if I'm explaining it right, but it's been this, it's sort of this, I've had bad relationships. I've had good relationships. I've had streaks of being a good Catholic, a bad Catholic. I've been a mediocre lawyer. I've had good jobs, bad jobs, but comedy is this one thing. And I had to look at it. Like, that's why people were accusing me of stealing uh, a bit online. Like when uh, this woman became very famous for lip syncing Trump videos. And I had been doing my videos before her and doing an actual impression. And people would say, oh, you should get your own, your own act. And I would attack every one of those people. And people would say, they only have 50 followers. Why are you bothering? Don't. And I go, no, no, no. Stealing theft is one of those things that when you've struggled in your comedy career to make ends meet, yeah. for most of that time, all I have is my integrity and my, and my pride in my work. So I don't yeah. care if you have two followers. If you call me a thief, <laughs> I'm not letting that sit uh, un, untouched. Yeah. Um, and I guess when I say pure, I think that's because when you're not making a lot of money at it, when you're wondering, I know I'm good, but is this actually going to work out as a career? Am I going to have a career at this or is it just going to be a hobby that I poured so much into? Mm. Doing it the right way is the only thing you can sometimes have. You can say, I didn't steal. I stayed true to my voice. I didn't compromise. I didn't try to pander. I didn't try to... And this isn't to say I'm some sort of edgy comic. Mm. I'm just saying... What I think is funny is what dictates uh, what I do. Um, if I can give one example, um, on one of my albums, I had a bit called 9-11 Selfies, which was about how 
I'm so glad we didn't have cell phone cameras at the time of 9-11 because you would have just had people filming it and yelling world star and all sorts of things. And, and so it's a, it's a long bit and it's definitely uh, quote unquote edgy. I didn't do it for that reason, but I thought it was a funny idea. A friend of mine was at the CD record, the album recording. And I only learned a year later that his father had passed away in, on 9-11. And I thought to myself, I was like, if I had known that, I probably wouldn't have had the guts to do the joke. Not because I think it's offensive, but I'm like, you know, I'm sitting here with a crowd of 60 people. I'm not like, I know this person, but I'm glad I didn't because obviously there's a chance you'll offend somebody, but mm -hmm. it's, I try not to go one way or the other, please or offend intentionally. It's just, this is my sense of humor. This is what I'm doing, regardless of the consequences. And it's yeah. a very, very long answer. <laughs> no, I love it, man. I love it. And it's, uh, it comes out on your albums. I haven't heard that bit, actually, but I've heard, I've listened to a, a couple of your albums. I listened to the whole of uh, Thoughts and Prayers um, oh, early, <laughs> earlier today. It's, uh, fantastic. Oh, great. Yeah, Thank we, you. We can come on to some of that later. But um, yeah, I mean, in many ways, you're the perfect guest to have on back on the main shows. We've been doing some shorter shows during lockdown uh, where we talk to comedians about the challenges of empty diaries uh, but in this new season, um, we'll be exploring a few key things, I think. Yeah, the transformation that took place in comics' inner world, you know, the anxiety, uh, the fears, the feelings of creative versus not feeling creative during lockdown. And then their external world, you know, pressure to produce uh, success of peers during this time, uh, support or lack of support. And then also how comedians are re-emerging. And indeed, the industry is re-emerging, perhaps very different to before right. COVID-19. So in terms of transformation, you've had a fairly big one, as you've alluded yeah. to, at least uh, looking at it from the outside. Um, and again, from your blog here, let me read your blog. It said, COVID hit, COVID hit. And thanks to a text from my friend, I decided to make a selfie video as Trump. It was my fourth or fifth video in the last week and a half. But this one went off like a fire. Within a week, I was already Twitter famous. And the irony is that now I'm now famous I, and have fans with nowhere to perform. <laughs> um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about that uh, viral video. Where, where were you mentally um, the morning of that video, the morning before you did that, what, what was going on? What was going on at the, you know, the, this was kind of at the start of lockdown, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it was, it was a week, about a weekend. That morning, I can say I was not thinking, you know, my, my career, I think I have to talk about how, where I was in my career to explain where I was that morning. Mm. Um, I was, I'm a lifelong New York City resident until about nine months ago. And I moved in with my girlfriend into New Jersey. I uh, took a full-time job at a law firm, which I still have. Um, so this is my lunch hour. <laughs> uh, I had kind of, I had written a pilot script. I was using my weekends to do some writing. I was still, still sending out emails for, for middle work at comedy clubs that I've, that I've worked at before. But I wasn't getting many bookings. Um, I had the full-time job, which was, sort of, and, and living, you know, commuting now, not, not you know, a 10 minute commute to work. It was an hour long commute. So, you know, comedy, I just had sort of decided after 16 at the time, 16 years, I can't make it the priority anymore. I just turned 40. I'm in a serious relationship. Um, you know, I'm tired of living, living month to month. I was never broke, but you know, you start to say, yeah, I guess it's great living month to month if you can, but there's no security there. So I said, you know what? A job fell into my lap at a law firm. 
and I said, I, this happened for a reason. I don't mean necessarily some divine reason, but I was like, I'm not looking for this job. These jobs don't come along that easily right now, especially for a 40 year old attorney with like a part-time track record for a decade. <laughs> so in my, my head, I was like, I wrote a pilot that I was happy with as a first writing exercise. I'm, I hadn't given up on comedy, but I, it was now not the priority. It had been the priority for so long. And I said, I can't afford mentally or financially to prioritize it anymore. Mm. So I made the night Trump gave a speech and that the NBA was canceled March 11th, I made a selfie video that got like 18,000 hits on Twitter, which was good for me at the time. I had 4,000 Twitter followers. Mm. I was like, oh, that's nice. My expectations were not raised. I was just like, oh, maybe I'll do another one. And if I get another 18,000, I'll pick up 50 or 60 Twitter followers. Because yeah. I was just in this space of I want to keep doing funny stuff and that's it. And maybe that's a healthier place to be as a comedian. You know, There was a freedom in not feeling like it was going to work out where you go, I'll just make some funny stuff and my friends and I still have a few fans out there that that's got to, I've got to get adjusted to that new mindset. Mm. So the lockdown, I w welcomed it only not because I didn't know it would be what it is now. Um, because I was like, Oh, well, two hours of my day commuting is now non-existent. So that it, feel, it felt like I got some time more relaxed. Uh, and then that day when I made the video, there was literally nothing, nothing unique about that day. I was going to walk my dog uh, around two o'clock in the afternoon. And my friend texted me that, that uh, Trump said, we're going to get the economy back open by Easter, which nobody thought was anywhere in the realm of possibility. So I thought, oh, that would be a funny video. Now, I'm not a social media genius. I didn't think, ooh, this will be the zeitgeist and I will capture something. I was just like, well, that's current. It's very current. It just happened. So I, I think I can riff a funny video on that. That's what I did. I went to walk my dog. And like, you know, 36 hours later, I was like around a million hits. And now all of a sudden people are going, this is amazing. And I'm like, where have all of you been? I've been doing this impression for years. <laughs> so my mindset, like, I can't pretend like I was like, I think this is the moment. I was just like, this is another day. I'm a little bored. I'm going yeah. to take my dog for a walk as a break from work. And that was it. Yeah. But, in, but interesting that you said, you know, maybe it was not that you'd given up comedy, but you'd maybe given up a certain portion of your mind towards it. And you'd kind of maybe stop caring about certain things and you thought, well, I'll just put these little things out there without too much thought, you know, which yeah. is, uh, which is, which is great. So we're going to play in, we're going to play in this clip now. This is just the first minute because people's attention spans can't, can't last two <laughs> minutes. <JM>. Right. Um, <laughs> it's just the first minute of this two minute Trump clip that you've just mentioned about Easter. So let's play it in now. 250 years ago, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whose full name, you know, he was he was Jewish, so his full name might have been like Christowitz, but God rose him from the dead on a holiday we now call Easter. Not a lot of people know that, but it's it's called Easter. It's when Jesus and the two Corinthians met the Easter bunny and came back from the dead. So you know it's a beautiful story. Very important for the Christians like me. And I have decided, I'm announcing today, we are going to bring back the economy on Easter Sunday. Because God, who, to be honest, is, you know, he's a good God. He's done some, some strong things. Some, let's be honest, 
His record is like not so great though. Uh, he brought one guy back on Easter Sunday and it was his son. So it was kind of like biased, but we're going to bring back the entire economy. So, um, so you said 36 hours, it was up to a million. Is that right? I, I think so. I think by 36 hours, by like the next night, it was either at a million or I said, I think this is going to get to a million, which, yeah. you know, when you're talking about somebody who's never had, I've mm. had a couple of YouTube videos get several hundred thousand views, but nothing yeah. like this. And the funny thing about that video that I always tell people, because for a lot of people, that's still their favorite. Mm. Um, it's not mine. It's not even close because yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to potentially hold a very special place in my heart considering what it's done for my career. Yeah. But the voice is off. Like, that's what I find so funny is that when I recorded it, I wasn't happy with the quality of the impression. You know, I already knew that I could do much better, but I was just like, this will be funny. And yeah. who is anybody even paying attention? So I wasn't like, this must be perfect. I got a nail. Yeah. And if you watch, I've done, God, over 50 of these videos since then. And I honestly think that might be the worst of the vocal impressions um, just by, just by randomness, I, it, it sounds like sort of deep and even dumber than I make him sound normally. So. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's something in that as well, that as, as we said, you'd kind of, you, you were just throwing it out there without too yeah. much thought. And maybe the thought that you'd been putting into it was, uh, I don't know, a block, <laughs> a block to people that the, this is just a guy having fun. This is a guy like, right. you, would, you know, just like, which is what the internet's all about. And think what you said on, on your blog previously, which is, uh, you know, people want to feel like they're comedians too. I could do that. And this guy's doing it better. So I'm going to share this. And um, right. but while those views were coming in, were you, were you kind of looking at them on the screen? Were you, what were you doing at that time? How was that? Uh, what was going through your mind as you were watching these views come in? Well, um, one of the first bigger people to share it was a comedian. He's a, a very good comedian. He's a correspondent on The Daily Show, Roy Wood Jr. He's been following me for a little bit. Mm. And he shared it and just, you know, gave it sort of a complimentary uh, comment as he retweeted it. Mm. And that jolted it from like 4,000 to 40,000. And I said, whoa. But you have to understand, like, I'm still not thinking that's going to be any. I'm just like, oh, that's, that's cool. I'll, I'll pick up, you know, 50 or 60 Twitter follows. That's, hey, mm. good for two minutes of, un, you know, free labor. That was, that was, that's a good move. Mm. And the next morning, it started getting shares from some entertainment people. Mm. Um, Ken Olin, who's a producer on uh, This Is Us, and Richard Marks, who I then developed this funny cyber friendship with, they shared it, I think, the next day. And that's when it really started to become a thing. Um, yeah. And then, then when it hit a million, I saw it keep going up. I said, ooh, how, how high? And now it's around 7 million. Um, mm. But it was just everything after that point was just uncharted territory for me. So I didn't know how to, I was just like, Ooh, 500,000 incredible. Oh, a million incredible 1.2 million. So every miles, it was a new record for me. You know what I mean? Every, every hour. So. Yeah. Are we having any particular thoughts about your career in that moment? Or were you just, were you just going with it? Or were you just thinking, this is it, this is something's happening here. That's, I knew something was happening, um, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I mean, because I was getting, I think I got emails from every part of my life. It was like, it was like a movie where like I had just died and my life was flashing before my eyes. I mean, elementary school, high school, college, oh, wow. 
neighbors, uh, relatives, coworkers. <laughs> I mean, from, from the last 36 years of my life, I was getting people flooded. And that's when I knew it was a pretty big deal, what was yeah. happening. But I remember the episode of my podcast I did because I posted it on a Tuesday. Mm. And I recorded my next episode of my podcast either the next Monday or Tuesday. By the time it really had crystallized that, oh, this is a 6 million hit video. And I've gone from 4,000 followers to 62,000 at the time. Mm. Uh, and I was very overwhelmed. Uh, not because anything had yet happened for me financially or, you know, it, it took three and a half months for one manager to even contact me. I still don't understand. I still seem to have some sort of shield when it comes to comedy success. But um, I was overwhelmed because it just felt like I knew this is where I should have been. I thought in 2013, when I put out an album called Keep My Enemies Closer, which is probably my personal favorite, mm. and went viral in a Louis C.K. parody video. And this was yeah. at the time of his, he was the unquestioned king of comedy. And this video got like 400,000 hits. Mm. Um, I thought that was going to be my year. I was like, okay, I'm 10 years in. I just put out a really great album. I put out a viral video. I'm a seasoned stand-up comic at this point. So like, this has to be the moment. And ever since then, I felt I have been ready. So that's seven years of feeling like I've grown still as an impersonator, a comic or a writer. But you mm. know, not everybody has to grow to their maximum potential before they get one chance at headlining. You know, a lot of time you, you get to learn on the job if you've gained enough clout or fame. But yeah. I knew I was ready and it's been seven years. And that moment, that next week when I was recording my podcast, I wasn't depressed, but I wasn't enjoying it because I felt like I had just been hit with seven years of exposure, fame, and compliments mm. in a week. Mm. And it was like, I thought that was going to happen, you know, every six months on a gradual pace when I was ready. And instead it was just like, this guy's great. Where's he been? You're amazing. You're amazing. You're the, right. this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. This guy should be on. The and you're getting like thousands of those and email after email from strangers, from a couple, from some mildly famous people. And you're just like, this is where, like where I'm at now is where I thought I would be, but I thought it would happen uh, in a much more phased in process, not, you're about yeah. to quit comedy and now you are an internet COVID celebrity. <laughs> sure. But was part of that down period in that week then was history telling you that you could go to 20 million viewers and it wouldn't actually affect your career based on that Louis CK 2013. Right. Um, I did. Uh, ironically, I, I joked with friends. They were like, this is it. And I go, never, never underestimate my, my career's ability to not succeed. <laughs> and what I did find funny, and it's, it's, it has nothing to do with her, we, but, but when Sarah Cooper, uh, sort of a month later, blew up with her lip sync video, yeah. it kind of eclipsed me. Not that we do the same thing, but she, she eclipsed me so drastically that mm. I went from the world's greatest, you know, presidential impersonator to get your own thing. And yeah. I'm going, well, first off, thank you for like, in a weird way, it's like, thanks for the compliment. I'm not lip syncing. So you're, you're inadvertently acknowledging that my impression it fooled you because mm. it's so good. But the more I explore TikTok, the more I realize is, is this sort of easily accessible comedy now the the norm. Like, in other words, it's not so much about showcasing your unique talent, but doing a relatable talent. 
Yeah. And I mean that as no, uh, th- th- there's always somebody who will take that as some sort of attack on their Twitter queen, but it's, it's, it's just an analysis of how people are responding to it. Yeah. Because for me to get this impression, to get recognized with this impression, on the eve of impressions no longer being the standard for impersonating someone, I thought was very on brand for me. Like, of course, I would reach my apex as an impersonator when people decide they prefer lip syncing. <laughs> it's, it's like, there it is. There, there, you have validated my lack of faith uh, <laughs> in my career trajectory <laughs> world. <laughs> well, we, we touched upon this right at the start that this is kind of fund, fundamental that when I, I mean, obviously I was going to talk to you on the, on the podcast today, but if I saw a clip that I loved, because I'm a stand-up and I knew he had six albums or several albums, I'd go and listen to an album, you know? Right. But you said 7 million views or whatever. How many of those 7 million people have, check- have checked out your albums? I'm not asking for exact figures. But Four. No, I'm kidding. Not, <laughs> not quite that low. It's- well, the funny thing is I had recorded an album as Trump that I almost didn't record. A friend mm. of mine has an independent uh, you know, comedy album uh, label that he started a few years ago. Mm. And I, record, I didn't want to, because I was really just sort of at the point where I was like, I don't think I want to produce any more major content. I don't, think, I, I don't think this path is working for me. Even though I like writing and performing and putting out albums when I feel like I have one. And I wasn't going to do it. And I just decided for some reason, you know what, let's go to your studio and we'll record, we'll record an album. So we had a six hour session. I could barely speak when we were done but we were really happy with the album. And I said, all right, good. You know what? I'm glad I did that because I know, once again, that whole sometimes your pride is all you have as a comedian when things aren't working out financially. And yeah. I said, you know what? We did a good album. I think that, and then his production of it was outstanding. And when I heard it, I said, that's great. That's, I'm really happy with that. So I'm glad I did it for my own pride. And mm. then I blew up and the album hadn't come out yet. And I said, well, this is going to help. <laughs> this is going to help the album. And we released it May 1st. And it went number one on Amazon and iTunes for, for you know, like a week, or two weeks on Amazon, five days on iTunes. Sold really well. Probably sold like 600 copies. Obviously, people stream music a lot as well. Yeah. Now, I knew that was going to be the biggest seller. But I wanted to see what my stand-up albums sort of pushed. Because yeah. I kept promoting those. I said, hey, if you like me, I know not everybody's... A st-. And I do these like... It's so weird to do like an apologetic, hey, <laughs> I know you guys may only like a political comedy that aligns with your values and impressions are very simple to get. But I also am a really good stand-up comedian. So if you're into that also, maybe stream an album. If you like it, buy one. You, know, try, you make all these apologetic pitches these days because everybody yeah. expects everything to be free on demand on their platform of choice. Yeah. Um, I couldn't even, when I quit Facebook for sort of ethical reasons, I couldn't even get most of those people to follow me to Twitter. I'm like, <laughs> you won't even sign up for a free site that isn't intentionally crushing democracy. Well, I don't know what to do then if my comedy was not worth a free login. Um, but I sold, I don't know if I sold, I'm sure I streamed a lot. Plenty of people told me they listen on Apple music title. Yeah. Um, I probably sold a hundred total standup albums. Yeah. Um, so, Which is good, but also disheartening because you go, mm. you know, if I was touring, I would sell that probably in 
a month, like four weekends, I would probably sell mm. at least a hundred total albums. So there's something about that connection and wanting to support the person live after you see them. But online, you know, content is really devalued, I think, even if people, even if people like what you do. And like yeah. you said, if, if I wasn't a comedian, I still buy comedy albums. But if yeah. I wasn't a comedian, I would be a diehard comedy fan. And I'd understand, oh, I should buy his album. I like this comedian. Yeah. Like, I should, that's not as a yeah. donation or a token or, but like, well, no, I like music. I buy a music album. I like stand-up comedy. I'll buy a comedy album. Mm. But maybe that's an old way of thinking. Well, yeah. I mean, we've talked at the top there about loving being a pure stand-up and working at it for 17 years and becoming very, very good. Is there any sense then that this fame that you have found is in any way problematic for you? You know, how are you feeling about the fame that you have versus perhaps the fame that you desire, which is for your stand-up, I presume, right. rather than your Trump? Uh, the Trump is getting, I'm going to, I don't, if he wins again, if he were to win re-election, which I just, I will be stunned if that happens, but obviously stunning things can happen. I won't do it. I, I don't understand. I don't see a world where I can continue doing it because I will no longer see to me his, a chance for him to be booted from office is the silver lining the dark, you know, dark comedy requires, uh, unless you're Anthony Jeselnik, you need some sort of like a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel for dark comedy <laughs> to feel somewhat not entirely mean and opportunistic. But um, for me, if he wins again, it, it, it's, it's the joke is over as far as I'm concerned. Now, I will continue doing him, uh, hopefully on a lesser extent, if he loses, because yeah. I have no problem kicking him while he's down and mocking the disgrace that he is. Mm. But the, the humor will be really lost for me. I mean, if SNL wants to pay me a million dollars a year, I might have to think of that for my family. But, <laughs> but other than that, which obviously that's not going to happen, I don't see how I can do that. As far as stand-up getting famous this way, I've, put, I've paid so many dues and put so much more into this than I've gotten out that however I get to exploit it at this point, I do not find it compromised. In other words, I've been ready and I had yeah. the mindset that I'm doing four different things, whether it's podcasting, writing, sketches, impressions, stand-up, that I wanted one of those to blow up and then to sort of the rising tide lift all boats. Mm. The boat I care about the most is stand-up, mm. but there's a reason I've diversified sort of my comedy portfolio is the idea that yeah, I can't rely on stand-up alone to help my stand-up career. Yeah. And I don't feel like a famous person who's now getting booked because they're famous. I know that might be the reason if I do get nice bookings, but for me, it's no, no, my stand-up has earned its place. However, mm. it has to get in the door. It will earn its the fans. But, um, you know, I don't like the fact that a lot of these fans that I have now aren't, I can tell when they're not really comedy fans, when they're just sort of on Twitter because they're bored and they like uh, similar political thoughts. Like when I, when I joke about Jeff Epstein molesting kids or Melania being a whore, oh, oh, ha, 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 ha. If I make a joke, I made a joke about the store Lane Bryant, which is a plus size women's mm. store. 
And I said, they filed for bankruptcy. And I wrote, Lane Bryant has filed for chapter 12 to 24 bankruptcy. That's like a Jay Leno level joke. (laughs) And I got, you should take this down. This is fat shaming. And I go, you get out of here because you're never, I now, thank you for letting me know you'll never be at a comedy club. I don't, I cannot (laughs) have you editing my material person who, like my last blog was, I think the subtitle was, do the comedy police even like comedy? (laughs) You know, and just because I'm politically aligned with you, and that's the dilemma I sometimes have is my comedy can some stand-up wise can appeal to a broad range of people. And most of the time you won't know my politics from my stand-up. But then after a show, sometimes it's some conservative guy making off-color comments because he thinks I'm like an edgy bro who hates libs and political correctness. Like Mm. I hate political correctness on stage. I'm fine with being politically correct at the Cheesecake Factory. Why are you saying this shit to me? Versus the people who love my political content, no matter how edgy or, or crude it can get because I'm on the right side. Yeah. And then the, the tamest of jokes, they clutch their pearls. So it's a, it's a, you know, I'm just trying to build an audience big enough that then there's a, a good enough slice in the middle that can be the stand-up audience that I need and, and want. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. It's that it, being a pure stand-up and having a pure audience that, that appreciates you. And because pre- presumably, I mean, you've talked about this in terms of being a headline after 17 years, you know, being a, a headline level comedian, getting your face on the poster, people coming to see you rather than, as you say, the middle or the, the, the support slots. And presumably in terms of your psychology and your happiness, I mean, you might tell me I'm wrong, but I, I, I'm guessing I'm maybe right that you could have 30 million followers on a on a Trump clip, but if you got if you got a few extra headline slots, the headline would make you happier. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. Of, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I always like headlining. I, I think I, I forget where I I said that recently, but to me. That's, that's it. I can't, you can't always yeah. tell a manager or an agent that that's your goal. Cause they'll go, well, that's, I want you to be in movies. I want, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I'd be happy to take that other stuff, but yeah. headlining that's special event on the poster. Yeah. You sell out a club. That's, that's the peak for me. Yeah. I haven't been working as an actor for 17 years. I've been working as a stand-up comedian yeah. for and 17 that's, years. That's what I love about your, about your ethos. It's just like, you get the sense that if you're just headlining, everything else can just disappear in a second. That's, you know, you'd be happy. You'd be happy yeah. every day then, yeah? And I tell, if you're talking psychology, I think what I've, I, I don't know if I, I said this on my podcast a few times, but, you know, being a middle act was amazing. Like the first time I got to do the road and was getting, you know, 20 weeks of bookings in a year to be a middle act is amazing. You're seeing mm. clubs, cities, states you've never been to, and strangers are laughing. And you're getting that feedback. Sometimes they're not laughing, but you know, you're learning and you're growing as a comedian and you're, you're, you're feeling like you have some fans. And you know, I did TV early in my career and that was great. But after featuring, you know, mostly I've headlined two clubs in the country. If you're feet three, I guess, um, if you're featuring for 12 years and you're getting better and better, but you're still just getting to do 25 minutes and you're trying to mingle in. Like, that's the thing about my albums. Five of them are one take, mm. basically. And you're, I'm having to do, okay, I will book this album recording in July. That means April, May, June, I have to get as many feature sets as I can and practice 
okay, tonight I'm doing this 25 minutes. Tomorrow night it'll be this 15 with a new mm. 10. And you're, you're, you're piecemeal putting together that set because you're not getting to do 40 headlining sets before you record. And the feature work, as fun as it is, and as much as I love traveling, and just the relaxation of it and, and just, you know, being able to read and walk around a city that you, you don't live in during the day. And it gets old, though. I said, I feel like I'm on a treadmill, like a, 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 a hamster wheel, where I'm mm. like getting very good at running this wheel, but now there's no growth. And mentally, you start to go, well, I know I'm, I know I'm kick-ass at this, but you're not, there's no reward. There's no incentive other than your own inner drive. But after a while, you start to go, well, for 11, 12 years, I've been going to these clubs, crushing, selling my new albums. And then I go home and nothing's changed. And I'm just waiting for that next email for the next middle act gig that's going to be predictably good. And I'll <laughs> sell, maybe I'll sell less albums or more, fewer albums or more. Headlining, and I'm not under any illusion that if I started headlining today, that 10 years from now, if I was still doing the exact same thing, I might fade back into a complacency or a, a bitterness because you yeah. want to find that new thing to grow, whether it's a special on a network or a bigger tour. Just, yeah. But it's all about reflecting the respect for your work. So yeah. if I have to do a theater, th that means more people recognize what I'm doing. So yeah. headlining would be that next jolt that would tell me, ah, I've gotten the promotion. It's like nobody wants to work at a company bust their ass and not get a promotion. And that's basically what it is. But there's no other alternative. I can't go to a, another comedy company. It's this. So if I don't get the promotion, I'm stuck or I quit. That's not, there's no, I went to work for uh, IBM comedy and now I'm getting respected. So mm. right now, what I'm hoping for is at least to get a promotion. And then the, the, the Twitter fame and the uh, that kind of online fame is not the promotion, is it? It's not the promotion and it's the stand-up and that's what I, that's what I love about you. And uh, it's, it's another bullet point on the resume for the yeah. promotion because now <laughs> at least people will say, we always knew you were good. Like clubs that I've worked, the only reason I can't headline many of the clubs I work is because there's no guarantee I'm bringing an audience. Yeah. Now yeah. I can flex these numbers a little bit and maybe they say, well, we know he's got the skills and now he seems to have the audience. Yeah. Hey, let's give him, let's give him a weekend. Yeah. Great. Great. And the other downside of being the internet fame versus the, the, the standup fame is in, in standup, you know, the audience is right there. And if you're saying anything a little bit edgy or something they disagree with, then you go on a journey with them. There's a great, there's a great bit on your thoughts and prayers album about Millie Vanilli and how they, you say that the guy, <laughs> You say that the guy, without doing the bit, you say the guy, yeah, kill, killed himself. And then there's just silence in the room. You take them on the journey. And what I yeah. love about that bit is you say virtually the same sentence uh, with a slight twist at the end of the bit. <laughs> and everyone, everyone, everyone is loving it. And I just love that bit for, the, for that reason. But yeah, online, if you said that. Online, if I have a top five bits. Yeah. If I have it. a top five, that is in my top five of my career. And that yeah. was the first... I had workshopped that joke with my girlfriend for a year just in conversation. Yeah. I did it for the first time that night. Love it. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I heard. So thank you. It means, once again, that means that just, I mean, I've worked on impressions. So there is a work to it. There is a, you know, it's not just, oh, I'm lucky and, and I, I just talk like whoever I want to talk. Like there's work, there's development that goes into that. Mm. But stand up is like deeper. 
Cause yeah. it's like my brain came up with this, not any kind of vocal cord skill that other people might have. I thought of this, I crafted this and it always feels good to hear that stuff praised more than anything else. So that is the end of part one of my chat with JL Covan. Join me next week when we will dive deep into that 17 year stand-up career and hear how comedy gave him a channel for his youthful aggression. I've made this connection later in life where I think it's probably a bit of sublimation where it was like I took some of that aggression and sometimes I made fun of kids, but obviously making fun, doing impressions is, a, is safer than punching some kid. In the meantime, do listen to that Millie Vanilli routine from the album Thoughts and Prayers. You won't be sorry. It's a masterclass in comedy construction. Psychomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Cassidy, BSc in Psychology, First Class Honours, and produced by Mike Hansen, BA English for Pop People Productions. Follow us at Psychomedy Pod at Pop People UK, at Nathan Cassidy, and at JL Covan. Please subscribe to Psychomedy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favourite shows. Please rate and review the show while you're there. And if you've got a bit of spare cash, please give us £5 a month or whatever you can afford on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Nathan Cassidy. And there you get exclusive video and audio content, including video from this very episode. Lots of love. See you next Friday for part two of JL Kovac. Pod people.